Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush, and this is the New Statesman's Politics Podcast. In this episode, we'll be discussing Nicola Sturgeon's arrest and Boris Johnson's resignation. So it's first thing Monday morning after a very newsy weekend in terms of British politics. I don't think I was the only one who was squinting at my phone in a sunny park at, at many points over this weekend. But we'll start with the news that Nicola Sturgeon was arrested yesterday as part of this investigation into £600,000 or so of donor money to the SNP. She's the third major figure in the party to have been arrested and released without charge as well. There's a limit to what we can say legally, so we can't really analyse the case so much, but we can, as our Scotland editor Chris Deeran did over the weekend in his piece about this, analyse the political implications. There's just more misery for Hamza Youssef, isn't there, Rachel? He's under pressure to suspend Nicola Sturgeon. Yes, and not least because his former boss set an awful lot of precedents for him, basically. If you look back to all of the other cases where there's been either an investigation or a possible investigation into an SMP, MSP or MP kind of Nicola Sturgeon's intervened every time to say that she thought it was right that they suspend, resign their membership or or step away from the party at that time. One example being Alex Salmond, another being yeah. Natalie McGarry, Michelle Thompson, when there are reports of just a possible police investigation into her then finance secretary, Derek Mackay, she actually suspended his membership. And the problem for Humza Yusuf in all of this is that he's very connected to the former leadership. So it's not just a process question for him, it's a, it's a political question as well. So he's finding it a big struggle to put some distance between him and his predecessor. For example, he was speaking on Laura Kuntzberg's show yesterday, Humza Yusuf, and was trying to get in a story there that if there was this situation that rose where there was a minority Labour administration, yeah. the SNP would make it very difficult for Keir Starmer unless Keir Starmer offered him an, another independence referendum. And that story just got lost immediately because because of, of Nicola Sturgeon being, of being, being arrested. But it's very because there's no distance between him and that administration, he's got no space to make any of the arguments that he wants to make. That's the thing. That's the irony, isn't it, for him? If one of his opponents in that SNP leadership campaign had won instead, it might have been easier for them to make these kind of very difficult decisions. Mm -hmm. Suspending Nicola Sturgeon and other senior members of the party while this investigation mm -hmm. carries on. He can't do that. I mean, he was literally framed as the continuity 
candidate. Mm. But now that is such a curse to have continuity with the administration or the previous administration that is under so much scrutiny now. Yeah, and I don't know if that speaks to some of the party divisions as well, because yes, he was framed as the continuity candidate, but it was something he also really leaned into because Nicola Sturgeon's been, was leader for a very long time and was very popular. Obviously, she had a lot of divisions with her predecessor, Alex Salmond, as well. He probably has some kind of base in the party that he doesn't necessarily want to show them that he's been quite aggressive towards or is excluding his former boss. Yeah. And for Labour, this is another gift, isn't it? I was up in Hollywood recently interviewing Anna Sawar and they were trying to suggest that they were not being complacent and all of those lines that you get. But there was a palpable feeling of excitement even in the corridors outside the Labour offices. They were waiting for a poll to come out that evening when I was there to see whether or not Labour really was ahead of the SNP in the polls at last. And they were, it turned out. And you could tell that they were very excited. But also the point was made to me, and it has been made to me by other people in the Labour Party down south, which is that it takes a bit of pressure off the challenge in England if, if you know, they can win sort of Scottish seats in the teens. That's an interesting point, that it does take the pressure off in other areas. I think it's it's also quite difficult for the SNP to frame the current Scottish Labour Party as like the branch office because they no, no longer have a Yorkshireman, for example, leading the party up there. Anna Saar was very much a Glaswegian. Yeah. Not so different background to Hamza Youssef in terms of they went to the same school and they indeed, actually indeed. and politics. They, yeah, and they also occupy a very kind of similar space in terms of the centre-left with the SNP, so yeah. they're co- competing for a lot of the same space, sim- similarly with the Scottish Conservatives of the kind of the centre ground. Mm -hmm. So they're beginning to absorb that space where some would say that's where that's the competition of politics. Mm -hmm. I think it's they'd probably be quite nervous given the it is very early on in kind of the SNP losing that support and their support plummeting. They probably know just how quickly it could snap back if they say they're not complacent there. You can understand why because there's still some distance to go between now and the next election. Yes and it's not so long ago that they were really in the doldrums. They're still in third place right in Holyrood in terms of actual MSPs. Yeah. Ben what do voters in Scotland think first of all should happen to Nicola Sturgeon? The thing with Nicola Sturgeon is she is a rarity in UK politics and being a politician with a great deal of favourability. A lot of voters do like her, not least in England as well. I always remember this statistic from 2015, which is that roundly a lot of English voters during the leaders' debates of the 2015 election kept saying of those who won, Nicola Sturgeon won the debates. Nicola Sturgeon topped the polls. This was being said by English voters. So she is obviously in the eye, objectively in the eyes of a great many voters, a competent debater, speaker, politician, charismatic, all the rest of it. She is well-liked, not least in the country in which for the past few years she has been governing. Nevertheless, the investigations of the past few months really do really have changed public opinion a little bit. Her favourability numbers are down, yes, but she's still liked, that's the thing. She's still regarded as one of the Yes campaign's best advocates, who else is there, really? But nevertheless, uh, in terms of the investigations, most voters do want her to get out of the limelight, to be suspended from the SNP. Most Scottish voters say, yes, the SNP should spend Nicola Sturgeon for the duration of the investigation, even though SNP voters themselves aren't as quite enthusiastic about that. Actually, SNP voters do not want Nicola Sturgeon to be suspended, but the SNP is not Scotland. More Scottish voters do. And that's the thing. So, yes, Nicola Sturgeon, still well-liked, still a roundly favourable figure with voters, perhaps still the Yes campaign's biggest advocate for now. But uh, when it comes to the investigations, most voters are saying, get away, go away. 
how has this scandal affected the SNP standing in terms of public opinion in Scotland? It's hard to say what proportion of the scandal investigation, financial affairs of the SNP, what proportion of it has been playing into public opinion recently. But we can say it's probably a pretty sizable chunk. And I'll give you these statistics. The SNP has been leading in opinion polls for God knows how long. I think a decade, longer than a decade, I think. We're talking long before the first referendum on Scottish independence. I'd say about 2013, 2012 was the last time the who was ahead in public opinion in Scotland was a contentious matter. Since then, they have almost actually, yes, entirely been leading in the opinion polls. They often lead quite comfortably until recently, until the past three, four, five months. We've seen the SNP's vote share popularity amongst the public decline quite sizably. In some polls, it's been as much as a two to three point lead over Labour, which, by the way, is not much. That's not a substantial lead by any stretch of the imagination. Generally, though, if you trust in the poll trackers, like Britain Alexa, it's more closer to it's closer to eight or nine points, maybe a little bit less now. Um, and what that what that is pretty starkly different from what we've seen before. Basically, the SNP's vote as a consequence, I think, yes, probably of the investigation and also the departure of Nicola Sturgeon and the rather unimpressive arrival of Humza Youssef. A lot of SNP voters aren't that enthused about the cause as much as they used to be. They're not as exactly motivated to perhaps come out as they used to be. And what we are also seeing is a number of SNP voters going from SNP to Labour, which is propelling Labour's recovery in, in the country a little bit, but not in its totality. This is the thing in Scotland. In 2017, you saw a breakthrough for Jeremy Corbyn's Labour in England. They didn't win the election, by the way, but they did pretty well. In Scotland, they also came back winning, I think, half a dozen seats. But everywhere they won those seats, they won by the skin of their teeth. The thing in Scotland is there are a lot, a, a lot of marginal seats. So if the opinion polls move by one or two points, that's actually probably shifting about five to ten seats. Scotland's a pretty, in one respect, for the past ten years, eight years, we've written it off almost as, a, as an SNP stronghold. But over the past ten years, we've seen it develop into something completely not that. And uh, as a consequence, a few percentage points here, a few percentage points there, moves a half a dozen seats. I started answering this question thinking maybe the investigation hasn't played that much of a an influence. But actually, I think it has played a decent chunk because it has moved the poll so much. You are seeing SNP voters going Labour. You are seeing SNP voters want to stay at home now. And as a consequence, Labour is recovering to such an extent they might go from one seat at the last election to between 10 to 20. That's a pretty sizable recovery. And that is maybe not entirely, but predominantly a consequence of the SNP's biggest standard bearer falling on her sword and uh, everything else following. After the break, we'll talk about Boris Johnson's resignation. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. If you enjoy The New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth. Featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Hold up. 
Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. So the other quite fast moving story over the weekend was Boris Johnson's resignation. So quite a lot happened in sequence. So let's go through it. Boris Johnson resignation honours list was released. But there was a little bit of confusion about some omissions of some of his allies from the list, which seems to have kicked off this backlash among him and his allies. Can you explain a bit what the contention is? Yeah, it, it said that Boris Johnson submitted a number of names to to, to the, basically the commission to for these people to be honoured as part of his resignation honours list. Yeah. And the what Rishi Sunak has said is that those names were passed to the commission and yeah, some names... the names. And, yeah, yeah, and some of those names did not on the final list. Some of those names that we, that were said to have been put forward in the first place, at least, were Nadine Dorries, who has since resigned with immediate effect as an MP, another very long-standing ally, Nigel Adams, who similarly has resigned with immediate effect, both of them triggering by-elections and causing a massive headache for Rishi Sunak. Right, and of course Boris Johnson himself has resigned with immediate <laughs> oh, yes, effect course, as well. Yeah. Yes, and is it is this what it's about? Is this why they're resigning? It's hard to say, isn't it? So there could be a number of things that are going on. I think when you look at Boris Johnson's resignation sta- statement, it, it, it goes into how there has been some kind of witch hunt against him is kind of very Trumpian in its tone. Um, Using the Privileges Committee of being a kangaroo court. This is the committee deciding whether or not he's... the other side of the coin, right? So yeah. it's the Privileges Committee which meet today to finalise their report. Boris Johnson was handed that report last week, which it's expected to recommend a pretty lengthy suspension and effectively triggering a recall, mm. uh, potentially under by-election. And basically he's scarpered, doesn't want to face that, <laughs> doesn't want to face that by-election and has, has decided that he's not going to do that. And he's, it, it was quite a huffy <laughs> resignation. Yeah. There's no other way to it's describe it. It's a flounce. There's no other way. There's no other way to describe it. But it's it is, as it always is. It's about the politician trying to control the narrative, and he wants to paint the the situation he's facing as some kind of witch hunt led by the committee chair of a cross-party group of MPs who've investigated whether or not he intentionally or recklessly misled Parliament, yeah. Harriet Harman, of being involved in some kind of like campaign against him to campaign to oust him as an MP, but. He has never been ousted as an MP because the point is the only way he could be actually ousted is if he was voted out, Mm -hmm. but he's actually chosen to resign himself. But rather than, I think, perhaps face that reality, I think Boris Johnson has chosen to to try and control how the media views this period and how the public more generally views this period, potentially because he may want to come back into politics at some later stage. Yeah, he doesn't want that verdict from the voters. I think it's rather convenient, isn't it, that he has all of these reasons to resign, or at least his own perceived reasons to resign, because Uxbridge and South Ryslip, this outer London seat in West London, doesn't look particularly solid for him. It's a small majority. It has been for a while, really. And it's thought by many pollsters that this will be the election. In fact, regardless of all of the scandal and shenanigans that we've seen, that Boris Johnson might be likely to lose a seat like this with these demographic changes that have been happening. I've done my fair share of reporting out in Uxbridge and 
South Ryslip over the years and it's near where I grew up and it is really changing fast there. Yeah, I think like a lot of London, London is very pro-labour, isn't it? No one kind of seriously thinks that Sadiq Khan, for example, is going to face a very serious yeah. challenge. And that's true in some of the West London, more affluent places where you would see an MP like Boris Johnson being elected. You have this forecast to lose it at the moment, aren't they, the Conservatives? That, and that's not true of Mid Bedfordshire, where Nadine Dorries has her seat, and it's not necessarily going to be true of Nigel Adams' seat in Selby and Insty either. But nonetheless, it's going to be a massive headache for Rishi Sunak. It's it's a very difficult period for the Prime Minister. Very difficult, because what happens when you've got three by-elections coming up is that the entire machine turns to politics and campaigning. Often they are mainly focused on that anyway, over governing. That's that's what's going to be taking up every politician's attention now in government, but also in opposition as well. Like it is, it is challenging running these campaigns. It's resource heavy. It's It takes all of your time commitment up. And of course, it's important for Labour to be able to prove that they are really onto a surge. That's right. And I mean, straight away over the weekend, you saw Labour's campaign head straight out to Uxbridge. They're sending their organisers to all of the seats already. So they really want to prove that they're on the front foot and that they're ready to win the election. And the sort of flip side of the problem for for Rishi Sunak is that the party's not in a great position financially and is going to struggle to really land the ground campaign that they might have been able to at different points in their history. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose the problem for him politically is that this all looks like more Tory infighting. I think the front page of the mail, the splash on the mail was Tory war or something like that, which doesn't look great for him in terms of the way that, you know, in terms of the coherence of his party, the way that he's standing up perhaps to the more difficult forces in his party. But then on the other hand, there's another view of this, which is <laughs> that he that he is relishing this fight with the more difficult forces that are less popular in the country in his party and that they'll soon be gone. That, that, that's a really interesting point, I think, because it's, I think, a lot of the things about Rishi Sunak and his campaign to try and win the next election, try to hang on, mirror Keir Starmer's reforms of his party in some ways as well, locking out their former leader, not necessarily resiling from a big fight with them to try and define yourself as the, the new force in your party, as it were. So, yeah, there was a, like a striking difference between, say, for example, the, the front page of the Sunday Times, which kind of said that steam's coming out of Boris Johnson's mm. campaign and mm. it was all about the steady ship Rishi Sunak. And then some of the other front pages, such as the Mail on Sunday, which I think there was like a two-page editorial within the paper, really, really flamming up just how hard done by Boris Johnson had been. <laughs> and I don't necessarily think that that kind of friction is all that damaging for Rishi Sunak because it gives him an opportunity to define himself. It did highlight to me this whole story was this is the only place Boris Johnson's allies feel that they can go. It's not a it's not a mutiny from within. It's a flouncing out. And actually, if your enemies or the people who are making life difficult for you are flouncing out, then that's probably a sign that you do have a bit more control over your party than we've seen leaders in the past have. If Boris Johnson was thinking about the medium term and if he wanted like a, an earlier exit, earlier re-entry into politics, then we then we suspect he, a lot of the Conservative MPs within Parliament at the moment are going to feel quite angry about the fact that they have three by-elections and they're not going to hang on to all of them, it doesn't seem. So it's a loss and it will be a loss inflicted on them because of Boris Johnson, basically. There will be some resentment there and I think it'll probably unite people behind Rishi Sunak rather than look at the king over the water. Yeah. Tell us a bit about this idea of a comeback because there was a rumour that that Nadine Doris was giving up her seat in order for Boris Johnson to go and run in it because it's got a much more solid Conservative majority, though it's not in the bag and we'll talk to Ben about that in a little bit. It doesn't seem to be what is going to happen as it stands. There's been so much briefing and counter-briefing over the weekend that it's hard to figure out quite what everyone's game is. But 
I just, it's not expected, I don't think, that he'd look for an early re-entry into Parliament. If you're Boris Johnson, I think you'd probably want to wait until your party was missing you (laughs) rather than try and shoehorn your career into another seat and try and rebuild early doors, I think, yeah. yeah. I suppose he'd have to be approved to stand for the seat. And he was quite damning about Rishi Sunak's policy agenda, wasn't he, in Mm. his resignation letter, from everything from a US trade deal to animal welfare. And so there's no guarantee that (laughs) the party sort of machine would allow him to do that in any case. Uh, no, no. And I think Boris Johnson's very good at these type of things. He keeps the media and the public guessing about what he might and might not do. So I think he, he's, if he's playing any game at all, it will be the long game. And yeah, yeah. Um, he'll have plenty to keep him busy, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> and keep us busy in turn. Thanks for that. Ben, can you tell us a little bit about what the Conservatives' chances are of keeping these three seats? Not good, to be honest with you. We've had Uxbridge and South Islip, Boris Johnson's own constituency, down as a modelled Labour game for the past, probably about the past year now, or maybe a bit longer than that, past year and a bit. Since the events of Partygate, the Conservatives have fallen nationally in the polls to the point that Uxbridge would go Labour. And right now, if you go to Britain Predicts, which I strongly recommend you Google, you can find that at the last election, it went Conservative 50%, Labour 33 and now we've got Labour on course for about modelled, at least. Model, mo- our model, by the way, takes takes into account national numbers. It's it's not watertight, although it's done really well for the past few by-elections. Right now we have Labour in Uxbridge on course for 48% to the Conservatives 37%. So a Labour lead of 10 points there, or 11 points at least. In Selby, however, it's a bit of a fine run thing. Selby and ANC is a North Yorkshire seat. The last time it went Labour will be on different boundaries. So Selby and ANC includes the town of Selby and the town of Tadcaster. And in 1997, it went Labour, but again, different boundaries. Right now, we have the Tories there ahead by two percentage points. Really, this is the type of seat where if Labour were to gain it right now, in my view, I think more attention should be paid to Selby than to Uxbridge. Uxbridge, I think we can pretty much write off as a probable Labour gain right now. Selby is the nip and tuck one. Selby is the marginal. Selby is where you want to go, where Labour needs to win, if we want to be sure that Labour is on course, not just for a comfortable majority, but perhaps close to a landslide. Okay, If Labour wins Selby and Ainsley, North Yorkshire, Selby and Ainsley, then landslide likely, at present at least. Mid-Bedfordshire, however, meanwhile, is a bit harder to predict because this is the thing with the Britain Predicts model. We don't yet account for tactical voting. We don't yet account for certain special seats like Mid-Bedfordshire because at the moment in Mid-Bedfordshire at the last election, Labour came second. But it's similar to North Shropshire. It's a bit similar to, I suppose, Tiverton and Honiton and other seats where the Lib Dems have come out of nowhere to win handily. The impression is that the Lib Dems may be given a sort of a free run there and Labour will focus more of their resources on Selby, quite rightly, of course. And we can't model that. We don't really know how to do that. What we do know, though, is the anti-Conservative vote is big enough to overtake the Conservatives in mid-Bedfordshire. We just don't know how much of that will coalesce around the Lib Dems or indeed even if there is a complete mess up indeed around Labour. This is the thing in mid-Bedfordshire. Very rural seat. Its biggest towns are, what, Flitwick and it's the outskirts of Bedford. It's south of Bedford, north of Luton. And there isn't much going there in terms of major urban populations. And you've got to think, you've got to look at these seats and think, if you're a party that's a distant second or you're really far behind and you want to overtake 
the big party, the, the one the one in front, the, in this case, of course, the Conservatives, you've got to ask yourself, how much potential support can I really get? How favourable is my brand in this area? How far can I really feasibly go? And in seats like this, the potential ceiling of support for Labour is a lot lower than it is for the Lib Dems. The kind of favourability amongst these kinds of voters, historically at least, is a lot higher for the Lib Dems. Now, some people claim Labour is recovering or doing significantly well in rural areas, but we haven't really tested that or tried that. And I think in a serious by-election like this, you wouldn't test that. You would stick to what you know. And if you want to stick to what you know, it would be letting the Lib Dems, I think, have this seat or at least go hell for leather for it while Labour focuses on Selby and Ainsley. And lastly, I just I wanted to speak a little bit about this because I think to the general public, it must look very childish and also quite strange. The idea that if you don't get your political way, then you just abandon your constituents. Surely MPs ought to be there to represent their constituents and out serve their terms out and then the voters decide who they want next. Yeah, you have to wonder how self-aware Boris Johnson is and how much he's reading the polls at the minute, which still show him at this point in his potential political career. He's certainly not very popular. Mm. And you have to think that the public probably look at it and, yeah, do conclude that it's childish. Again, this might be one of the reasons why the whole row in the end may benefit Rishi Sunak. But yeah, it doesn't really reflect very well on our politics, does it? Mm. That this is the situation where we have a former prime minister <laughs> throwing it, appearing to throw his toys out of the pram and, as you say, flounce out of politics. And yeah, it just gives you the idea that like politics looks like a game and that's never something the public finds very appealing. It's really not good at all for the governing government of the day. You have three Conservative MPs all resigning, one the former Prime Minister. It feels like an aborted coup. That doesn't, it it seems to be dealing dividends. I don't know what they were expecting. What were they really expecting to come from this? Were they expecting more MPs to join them? Were they expecting to form a new political party? Were they expecting to eventually get into bed with Nigel Farage? I don't know. But this doesn't seem planned. Again, this is not normal politics, but we're living through it. So let's see what happens. No, what this is, basically, what this says to voters is this is a party full of kids throwing the toys out of their pram who are having tantrums. This is not a party of government. And always remember this statistic, which is that parties that are seen as divided normally perform poorly at elections anyway. Corbyn's Labour was always seen as divided. It's not seen as particularly divided. Now, majors, conservatives, they were seen as divided on Europe because Europe was seen as quite a bit of an issue in 1997. It was all about the single currency back then. And their divisions, the Tory party's divisions on Europe were seen by voters and did contribute at least partially to a great many, I think, middle affluence type voters uh, moving elsewhere. It doesn't help. It's not going to help at all, and it's just going to endear to voters a feeling that you're looking, you're watching a soap opera that's playing with your taxes and money, a country. It's going, I think, to just fortify that 60% of voters, that, that 60% of voters who say the next election should be a change election. And I don't think that's going to get smaller or shrink with the passing few weeks. We'll keep an eye on everything, and I think maybe on Thursday we might have the Privileges Committee report to speak about. Come back to us then. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to submit a question for us to discuss on a future podcast, you can do so at newstatesman.com forward slash us, or just pop one in the YouTube comments. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues Rachel Earmouth and Ben Walker. We'll be back on Thursday to discuss the week in politics. 
Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. You can also watch video from this podcast on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for The New Statesman. We're produced by Adrian Bradley.